This is Tom Hanks. Do you know an undiscovered musician who deserves a break? Well, we have an idea for them. NPR Music is holding a tiny desk contest to find one great unsigned musician to play the iconic Tiny Desk concert series and tour the United States with NPR Music. All you have to do is shoot a video of your musical act playing an original song behind a desk and submit it by January 29th. Learn more at npr.org slash tiny desk contest. Thanks, Tom Hanks, for starting our podcast. It's kind of exciting. Anyway, now before we start, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to The Big Listen. That means you. You're listening right now. And if you love the show or even just have very warm feelings towards us, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people, just like yourselves, very attractive listeners, find the show. Thanks so much. Now, let's start the show. Lindsay Varghese's commute isn't a whole lot of fun. You know, when you live and work in Manhattan, the subway can be, you know, sometimes a very difficult place to be. Her way of dealing with all that chaos? Podcasts. Specifically, the show Another Round. Another Round was just always my way of just blocking it out and just focusing on, you know, whatever moment was being described in the episode. But last May, she was listening to one particular episode, a podcast she says saved her life. Honestly, it, I, I kind of felt like everything around me was no longer there. I know that sounds very dramatic. I'm Lauren Ober, and from WAMU and NPR, this is The Big Listen, the broadcast about podcasts. Each week on The Big Listen, we introduce you to podcasts you might not have ever heard of, and we give you the inside scoop on shows you already love. Now, what I said before about how podcasts saved Lindsay's life, it's actually true. See, Lindsay had recently been diagnosed with endometriosis, which is an extremely painful disorder of the uterus. Uh, the first doctor that I saw who diagnosed me, this is word for word what she said. She said, endometriosis is a tough disease. I'm sorry you're dealing with it. And she left it at that. <laughs> oh my God, what a jerk. That is like the world's worst doctor. Yeah, it was the most condescending thing. Like, oh, thank you for, you know, agreeing that this is awful, but what do we do about this? Right, she basically was like, get over it. Yeah, like, dude, this is awful, but, you know, you know, that's life. Ending credits, you know, work it out. So, fast forward to that subway commute in May. It was just... I felt like it was my story being projected to me in my ears. I wasn't diagnosed until I was 36, 23 years mm. after I had my period. And I always had digestive problems. I always had lower back pain. I always had. It was suddenly not just something I was dealing with on my own. This was like a, a real person, like a face I could put to it. We're going to hear more from Lindsay about how this particular episode changed the course of her life later in the show. But first, we're going to introduce you to an equally important podcast, but this one focuses on race. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the weekly podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post-yet-still-very-racial America. You could say all that or just call this show About Race. The show About Race features panel discussions led by comedian and writer Bartunde Thurston, Jezebel founder Anna Holmes, 
journalist and filmmaker Raquel Cepeda, and white guy Tanner Colby, author of a book called Some of My Best Friends Are Black. We're joined now by two of the four co-discussants of the show, Anna Holmes and Raquel Cepeda. Welcome to The Big Listen. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) All right. Thank you. So can one of you, perhaps Raquel, uh, tell me where the title came from? Because I know the title predates you, Anna, correct? Yes. Yes, it it predates me. It kind of predates me, too, because um, I was invited by Baratunde Thurston and Tanner Colby to actually first just moderate a conversation. But then when we actually got to the place where we were going to do the conversation, we're like, oh, F it. You know, let's just... Let's just uh, test a podcasting style conversation. And then ended up doing really, really well. And people really, you know, really became what I would say, like, almost emotionally attached to the way we're speaking, what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't your, you know, your typical, like, you know, you ask the question in a very soothing way and you wait (laughs) for the other person to answer. And and that's what made me kind of comfortable and really excited about actually exploring doing a podcast. And then Baratunde and Tanner were like, well, why don't we just develop this podcast? So in the beginning, it was, you know, Tanner, a white guy and a black guy talking about race. And, you know, that's really novel. But, you know, I came in there to get kind of give it like a, a, you know, a different point of view. I'm a woman. I'm a Dominican New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker, which is like a dying breed and actually something you never hear. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when we all got together, I thought that that the mix was really cool. It was kind of like um, dinner parties, you know, at my crib. Mm-hmm. So that's how that came to be. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's how the name. Came and then, uh, and then that name, you know, was there first. It was like our national conversation about conversations about race. Um, which is, I guess, I don't know. That sounds like a Tanner. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Tanner yeah, come up with, yeah. And then, you know, we all called it, you know, um, you just call it show about race yeah. or about race. So um, I wonder, Anna, if you think that there is a national conversation going on right now about race. Uh, I don't think it's one conversation. <laughs> um, I, I think that aspect of the show's title um, might might be false advertising because I don't think that we're even having one you know one particular conversation on the show about race Mm -hmm. I think there are lots of conversations I think that we're having conversations with ourselves internally and conversations externally and uh, you know with with one another in the studio and conversations with our listeners and conversations with people who are are on the outside so I don't actually think there's a national conversation about race I I'd be hard-pressed to say that race is a conversation or a meaningful one at all in American society. I think that people shy away from talking about race whenever they can. Yeah, so I I don't think there's one conversation. Um, I think that the conversation that is being had, you know, when it's being had, is a very binary black and white one. And, you know, and that's, I think that's why we find, we're finding ourselves in a place today where, I don't know, as it may be, as a consequence of a black president, we have you know the rise of Donald Trump and the alt right and that kind of hatred, you know, hate talk, hate rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's because we don't have the conversation. Everything is whitewashed in the society. <laughs> what I'm saying is that like you have two sets of damaged people in this equation. You have black people who have been burdened with this. this no, they're not, they're not. They're not equally damaged. I, 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 I don't think you can equate the two. I don't think. You, did I say two, equally or well, two you said people two, who are damaged? Two sets of damaged people, and right, to me, that feels like one here and one one in this hand, and like that. That to me is equalizing them. Okay, well, I'm not equalizing, but there is damage on both sides. What I'm saying is that we are all damaged by what white supremacy and racism has done to this country. If you only think of this as, as white people are the perpetrators and the burdensome ones and black people are the victims shouldering the burden, 
then that's not exactly true. Even when you're ignoring it, even when you're hiding in your gated community and pretending that it doesn't exist, that anxiety and guilt is always there just under the surface because you haven't dealt with it and you're not capable okay. of dealing with it. Things, the... I'm not saying it's as bad as the trauma that black people have okay, gone through in this country. I'm even, just saying but even, right. that... I, yeah. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying that, like, obviously, racism, the American racism, white supremacy has had all these consequences for everybody, right? Like, um, right. obviously, mm-hmm. white people have benefited from American racism in all these ways. But and I think one of the yes. things that's difficult about these conversations is when we're talking about these big things that like affect black people, like housing segregation and like keeps black people from creating wealth and all these things like that. And then the the, the stakes for in these conversations, the stakes for white people are their feelings, which is not really the same thing, right? It's completely asymmetrical. And so that's sort of the hard part about these conversations. Now, I wonder if, um, is it ever exhausting to have these conversations? Um, I mean, I've listened to a number of your episodes and found, like, I don't know how you don't get frustrated or, you know, I was thinking uh, the the voting rights, uh, the fight for your voting rights episode, um, Anna, that you and Tanner hosted and, thinking like this is learning all this information and and talking about it is so frustrating because then it's like well what do you do about it yeah well you know i don't necessarily think that the point of discussion or talking is is to come to a conclusion or to mm-hmm. or to or to find answers i i think if that was my expectation around discussions i would be perpetually frustrated and i just like talking and i like listening to people talk and i'm curious about the ways that other people think and feel and speak i would it would be hard for me to complain that talking about race is at all frustrating i mean i think it's frustrating i think that for people of color in the united states uh being a person of color can be frustrating be very frustrating Mm -hmm, and exhausting you know, and that goes for me to a certain degree as well. I think you know, perhaps I I, I have to deal with the implications and the, the the frustrations that come with being a person of color less than other people because I pass really easily. Mm-hmm. So the way the world interacts with me is 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 much different from that of other people. Um, but no, I'm not, I'm I'm not exhausted by it at all. And and in the case of like the the, the that episode, the voting rights episode, certainly there's a, a level of I can't believe this is the world we live in that crops up when, when, you know, I was listening to Ari talk about all of the efforts to suppress the vote and the votes particularly of people of color. But this is not something that I didn't know before. Right. And it's not something that I don't feel basically every time I open the Internet and read a news article. So it's important to remember some of these efforts were underway before the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, because a a lot of these things originated after the 2010 election. But it it was like they were injected with steroids after the voter suppression monster. The head grew, they got strong (laughs) biceps, you know, it was like Barry Bonds. He was a good hitter before steroids, but he wasn't the home run king. And so that's really what happened. And then you saw laws that were blocked in places like Texas were allowed to be put into effect. And then states passed more sweeping voting restrictions like in North Carolina, where they didn't just do voter ID, but they cut early voting and they eliminated same-day voter registration. They eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. All these reforms that state had were eliminated. And the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said that that law targeted black voters with almost surgical precision. And it's really amazing to read this opinion that the Fourth Circuit put out sometime in in the summer of 2016, because it's such a striking rebuke to John Roberts. Here you have the chief justice basically saying racial discrimination in voting is a thing of the past. The Voting Rights Act is no longer necessary. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Fourth Circuit in North Carolina basically saying, you took all of the methods that increased black turnout 
and you targeted them, in the words of the court, with almost surgical precision. Right. You cut early voting because 70% of African Americans used it compared to 51% of whites. Everything you did was racially motivated. And you mm -hmm. might claim it's because of partisan. Now, it gets talked about a lot that we're going through this um, huge demographic shift in the country right now. And I wonder um, if you guys could look into your crystal balls and think about, project out the impact that that will have in terms of our conversations about race and how we're going to have to shift how we think about things. Well, we see it right now. I mean, you see it the way that, you know, people are responding. Let's say a group of, let's say, mostly white men are responding to this, you know, this uncertainty of their future and this, you know, gen this conspiracy of genocide and with the disappearance of, of, of their of their group. What do you see? You see the rise of the alt-right movement, right? Mm -hmm. You see the rise of, of, of you see the mainstreaming of, of, uh, of white supremacy. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not someone to, to make predictions about the future. <laughs> so, so let's just take that, you know, say, so just take what I say with a grain of salt because I, you know, I, I kind of never. I, I do. I like to predict the future. <laughs> okay. well, I, I walk around with a crystal ball. <laughs> I I do think, you know, as Raquel said, that, that, that I think the conversations have already been changing, um, that they feel, you know, different, per perhaps more numerous in number, perhaps more assertive than they used to, let's say, five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, certainly, you know, 20 years ago, um, when I was really a young adult. I'm not such a young adult anymore. <laughs> And for me, I'm like surprised that we're so far behind. I feel like we're so far behind yeah. on these conversations. And it's interesting because we're in the Americas and we were made, you know, the Americas, human beings were, we're, we're test tube children. We're, you know, we're the, we're the, we're the getting together of all these different cultures for better and for worse because of, you know, the illegal immigration of the European when the native, when first Americans were here already living here and, you know, and the slave trade and the transatlantic slave trade, the, 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 the indigenous slave trade, they mm -hmm. were, people have mixed, you know, uh, wantingly or not with one another. So we should have been able to see the subtleties and, and the nuances and, and the grays in human beings. We should have had this, we should have had this conversation on lockdown. We mm -hmm. should have been helping other people, other <laughs> societies so um, it, it shocks me how hom homogenized and, and far behind we still are and and how just like how we're like stuck in quicksand Anna Holmes and Raquel Cepeda are two of the hosts of our national conversation about conversations about race from Panoply to find out more about the show check out our website biglisten.com Remember our friend Lindsay Varghese from the top of the show? She wrote about her experience with endometriosis for the website exojane.com. The title was It Happened to Me, a podcast saved my life. Well, that wasn't hyperbole. Her endometriosis was becoming unmanageable. The endometriosis was bothering me every day, and it was escalating. The pain was awful. Then, on that episode of Another Round, she heard author Padma Lakshmi of Top Chef fame talking about her struggles with endometriosis. In the South Asian community, you don't really talk about things like this openly. And I think her being South Asian, I don't know, it was just like a mind-blowing moment. Like, I guess it was just motivation. The motivation Lindsay found helped her ditch her original doctor, who seemed so apathetic, and find someone new. 
the doctor that Padma suggested, you know, examine me. And he printed out, you know, the scans, and he, like, very dramatically put them up on that lighted board that all doctors use. <laughs> and he says, you're about to lose an ovary or worse. Oh, my God. And to hear that is just, it was baffling. The new doctor suggested surgery, and now Lindsay is doing a million times better. I'm pain-free, and it's still a weird feeling for me because... I'm very happy, I'm pain-free, but I'm still a little bit traumatized by everything. It's time for a quick break, but when we come back, we'll hear from some of the pioneers of the gay rights movement about the struggles they faced. When there was absolutely no recourse and he couldn't figure out how to make a living, he decided he was right, the world was wrong, and no one was going to get in his way. And he won. That's coming up in a sec on The Big Listen. Stay tuned. This is NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Yum! Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box which is good if you're lazy. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free plus free shipping by visiting blueapron.com slash big listen. Hi, Lauren. This is Anne Bright in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. One of my favorite podcasts is Everything is Stories by Garrett Crow and Mike Martinez and Tyler Ray. It is an amazing storytelling podcast from some of the most unusual stories that you've ever heard. Episode 18 largely deals with the death chamber. So a warning because it explores issues that largely come from such a complicated place. My name is Michelle Lyons, and I am in Huntsville, Texas, where I was the spokesperson for the Texas prison system and where I witnessed some 280 executions carried out by the state. It's mesmerizing. They do a wonderful job. I enjoy your show. Thanks so much. Bye. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I totally want to hear what kind of stuff you're listening to in 2017. Call us on our official pod line and let us know. The number is 202-885-POD1. Surprise me with something I've never heard of. In the summer of 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a landmark case called Obergefell v. Hodges, In question was whether same-sex couples had the right to get married. The ruling was five to four in favor of marriage equality. This morning, the Supreme Court recognized that the Constitution guarantees marriage equality. In doing so, they've reaffirmed that all Americans are entitled to the equal protection of the law. The decision was a major victory for gay civil rights in America. But it's a decision that never would have happened were it not for the people featured in the new podcast, Making Gay History. This week, I want you to meet Wendell Sayers. You won't read about Wendell in any of the history books. 
Try an online search, and all you're going to find is the day he was born and the day he died. You won't even find his name in my book because he asked me not to use it. The show, hosted by journalist Eric Marcus, is a compilation of oral histories from the 80s and 90s of both prominent gay rights activists and ordinary LGBT people who fought for equality just by simply being themselves. Eric Marcus, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you, Lauren. Delighted to be on your show. All right. So I'm going to need you to explain what Making Gay History is, because it's a little different than other podcasts out there or most other podcasts out there, I think. What we do with Making Gay History is that we we mine my audio archive. I've got an archive of 100 interviews that I did for an oral history book that was originally published in 1992. So back in the late 1980s through 1990, I went out across the country and interviewed people who were involved in some aspect of the LGBT civil rights movement, which at the time was called the gay civil rights movement. What I did when I first did the research for the book is I had to build a timeline um, of the gay civil rights movement. There was no such thing. One of the things that, 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 that shocked me when I first started my research was that I didn't know any of this. Um, I had thought that the gay rights movement began in 1969 with a, with a riot at a bar in New York City. I didn't know there was a movement that started 19 years before or that there was a movement in Germany in the 19th century that was wiped out by the Nazis. And I came across names of people along the way, people whose stories seemed interesting to me. And then I wrote to people and called people and they recommended someone here and someone there. All kinds of people from Dear Abby, who's well known, to Sylvia Rivera, a trans icon, um, to people who no one's ever heard of before uh, or people who are long forgotten, like Edith Ide who published the first uh, newsletter for lesbians in 1947. I'd read that Edith was well-known in the 50s for singing parodies of popular songs in Los Angeles gay clubs. She wrote her own lyrics as a protest against the demeaning jokes gay entertainers told for the benefit of straights. And if you can imagine, the straights would show up at the clubs in the evening to see how the other half lived, and they'd stand in the back. So I asked Edith if she could sing a few songs for me. So here she is, Edith Ide live from the front porch of her Burbank bungalow. Yeah, I need to warm up a little bit. I should tune up a little bit first. Hello, young lovers, whatever you are, I hope your problems are few. All you cute butchers lined up at the bar, I've had a love like you. And the remarkable thing was that these people were still alive. They could tell their stories. Finding them was not easy um, because someone like Edith Ide, who was known as Lisa Ben, she went by Lisa Ben. You can't look up Lisa Ben in the phone book. It took, twi- it took 24 phone calls oh um, until I found her. <laughs> I mean, it's so easy to research this now by comparison. But in those days, so many of the people who were involved in the early movement used pseudonyms. So how do you track down someone who didn't use their real name? Sure, for safety. Right, right. Yeah. So how did you how did you go about picking these folks? Um, Because some of them are known, you know, that there are familiar names, obviously, Dear Abby. And if if people know about the Stonewall riots, Sylvia Rivera's name might be people might know Sylvia Rivera. Um, But a lot of these folks would sort of be lost to history were it not for hearing them on your tape. Yeah, um, they would. Even for the people we hear from in this podcast who are well-known, we may know what their accomplishments were. We don't 
usually hear them. We don't hear their voices. We don't hear about their personal stories. They all had their own struggles. They, and they weren't just people who uh, did great things like Vito Russo, who, who co-founded ACT UP and co-founded GLAAD and wrote this extraordinary book. He was dying of AIDS when I interviewed him. And a lot of our discussion was about how lonely he was and how much he missed his boyfriend, Jeff, who had died of, of AIDS before he did. Jeffrey was sick for a long time, a year and a half. I didn't know what to do to save him. You know, when you love somebody, you always feel like they're not going to die as long as you're with them. You know? I mean, if you stay with them and you take care of them, that they won't die. And I really felt like, you know, against all rational truth, I could save him. Jeffrey became, at the end, very unmanageable emotionally and psychologically. He was very difficult to live with. And I was sick myself. And so it became a constant battle of how much stress I could put myself under taking care of him because I was ill. The last time I saw Jeff, he was in a drawer at the morgue. They opened it up and they showed me him and I spent a few minutes with him and I held his hand and said goodbye to him. And I miss him terribly. I mean, just terribly. He's been gone almost three years now and I'm still sick. And I'm very lonely. You know, it's hard to live alone and be sick alone and as many of your friends as you have, and I have good, loving friends and a great support system, people cannot be sick for you. There are people, probably most of the people in your collection, who who would never, no one would ever hear from. I'm thinking of Wendell Sayers. Parts in that interview that were, were so um, poignant that I, you know, it almost brought me to tears. What made Wendell so special um to me, was hearing the story of, of someone who grew up at a time when there wasn't even language for what he was. Do you remember what you, what you thought, how you realized you were different? Well, I knew I didn't care anything about girls. Everybody mm-hmm. else was chasing after girls, and I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> this didn't make sense to me, and still doesn't. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so you thought about, about killing yourself. I thought one time I just didn't want to go through life with this one, and uh, I didn't know other way to keep from it. Uh-huh. And I was just completely uh, down and out, so to speak. I gave up, practically. Finally, my dad came to me one day and told me what uh, he had heard, and whether he heard it or what, how he found it out, but somebody must have told him. What did your dad hear? He didn't tell me, he told me things, he told me that he had heard that I was not natural, sexually. He said, we'll go to the Mayo Clinic, get your examinations and see if we can find out what caused it, what to do about it. So he puts Mother and I in the car and we go up to um, Minnesota. Minnesota, okay. That was back in the days couldn't get a place to stay, you couldn't get a place to eat. Because you're black. Because you're black. What did you do? Buy crackers and bologna and in the store and take them out and eat them, stuff like that. Were you still in high school? Yes, I think I was still in high school. You must have been terrified. I was terrified. Now they've had me in the hospital for in and out for several days. Did they ask you questions? Oh, yeah. All kinds of questions. They determined that I was homosexual and that there was nothing they could do about it. And um, 
Final report from Mayo's was that um, according to their state laws that I should be, they should report me and have me incarcerated. Incarcerated? Yeah. For what? Because I was different. Put in jail? In jail. They said that since I was a, um, a client of theirs, they would not do that. Anybody who has, anybody, certainly anybody who's LGBT can understand what his struggle was like, but also anybody who's different, um, who feels out of place. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, um, had you ever done an oral history before? I mean, I know that that wasn't the, the sort of, that, that wasn't the end goal for you, but you ended up producing this work of oral history as well, this massive collection of, of tapes. Uh, no, I had never done oral history before, and and I, I, I have thanked my 30-year-old self, actually my 29-year-old self. Um, so I used I used high-quality tapes, and I used high-quality equipment, and wound up with these these interviews that I could use three decades later for this, this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it really is amazing being able to hear, um, you know, folks in their in their own spaces, right? I mean, you, you roll up to, you know, Abby Van Buren, dear Abby, <laughs> yes. and and she's she's in her um, her hostess pajamas and she's talking on the phone to some type of, you know, decorator or somebody who's like remodeling her house. And, you know, and you're just sitting there politely waiting and you you get all this tape and it feels really um, it feels really intimate, I think. It, and the experience of being there was intimate. I remember so vividly uh, visiting with dear Abby, and I sent Abby the introduction as a courtesy. I sent the introduction to the to her uh, her oral history for the book, and the only thing she changed from the introduction was she said, "Oh, please don't don't say I was wearing pink fluffy slippers because they don't match my pajamas." Um, <laughs> so I cut that I cut that out. People invited me into their homes um, and uh, and onto their front porches, and they served me lunch. Um, Although not everybody, I remember going to to meet with David Copay. He's the was the first professional football player to come out in the mid nineteen seventies. Right. Um, I hadn't had lunch, and I'm thinking, please God, just offer me food. He had <laughs> he had a pizza on his counter, and and I could see there were still three pieces left in the box. Did I ask if I could have a piece of pizza? No. Um, so I died through his two and a half hour interview just longing for that for that pizza. I didn't care who I was interviewing at that point. <laughs> so now, you know, we're at a time where um, gay people aren't persecuted in the same way, right? Like, we all have our rights. We're fine. Um, and I say that, obviously, tongue firmly planted in cheek. Yes. But, um, but what then is there left to learn from from these oral histories, from hearing these people's voices and, and from their stories? There are many uh, fights yet to be fought for equal rights, whether it's LGBT rights, women's rights, black civil rights, minority rights, immigrant rights. What we learn from the people I interviewed is that there's a way to do it, um, and that even when the odds are against you, there is a roadmap. If you listen to the interview with Frank Kameny, who was fired from his government job in 1957, when there was absolutely no recourse, and he couldn't figure out how to make a living, he decided he was right, the world was wrong, and no one was going to get in his way. Basically, what this amounted to was a declaration of war against me by my government. A, I don't grant my government uh, the right to declare war against me. And B, I tend not to lose my wars. I went through such appeal procedures as there were 
was take you through the lower level of the uh, bureaucracy, and then uh, on the philosophy that ultimately the head of the executive branch of the government is the president, you go to the top. And I have always gone to the top on these things, so I worked my way right on up, without success, ultimately to uh, letters to the president. I, my feeling is that you always pursue things to their to final conclusion. He won. Um, he got the government to change its rules. It took 18 years. So mm -hmm. what these people offer us now, especially at a moment in our history where things are looking really bleak, um, we don't just have to sit back and say, we have to live with this. Um, we have to fight. And here are these people who fought at a time when nobody would have believed that change was possible. Eric Marcus is the journalist behind the podcast, Making Gay History, produced in collaboration with Pineapple Street Media. If you want to know more about the show, check out biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another quick break, but when we come back, we'll hear from author Susan Orlean about her favorite things to cry about. Any movie, book, song where someone returns home and it's not the way it was. You know, it's either abandoned or changed or, oh God, I can't, you know. That's coming up in a GIF here on The Big Listen. Stay put. This is NPR. Listening to the news all week is your patriotic duty as a citizen of America and also sometimes a big pain in the behind. But wait, wait, don't tell me. The NPR News Quiz is your weekly salve. A hard week's news is made more palatable by the Wait, Wait crew. But the weekend of January 14th, there's a bonus. Tom Hanks, our new best friend, is guest hosting. That guy from all the movies. You know him. You love him. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me with special guest Tom Hanks on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Hi there. Um, my name is Tyler St. Clair from Baltimore, Maryland, um, and I'd like to really recommend the uh, Futility Closet podcast. Um, it's run by Greg and Sharon Ross, and their podcast is a, um, it's just a really interesting collection of unique and quirky history. Interesting things have happened to cities, like when they had to jack up the whole city of Chicago several feet. So what they would have to do here, crazy as it sounds today, is raise the grade of the whole thing so that water in this sewage system, the sewer system, would run off into the river or into Lake Michigan. It's just extremely interesting. It's heartwarming um, and exhaustively well-researched. So yeah, it would be wonderful to see them get a, a wider audience. Thank you so much. Hope you're having lovely days. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I am desperate to hear about your favorite podcast. So call us on the pod line and give me the scorching hot scoop. The number's 202-885-POD1. I can't wait to put you on the radio. It's that time again, friends. It's Listen Up Time, the part of the show where we grill some pretty cool folks about what podcasts they're into these days. Today, I am delighted 
tickled even to chat with one of my favorite authors and yours, Susan Orlean. She is the author of The Orchid Thief and more recently, Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. But for our purposes, she's also the co-host of the podcast Crybabies, along with the writer and actor Sarah Thayer. Hello and welcome to Crybabies. I'm Sarah Thayer. I'm Susan Orlean. And we're in New York City! The conceit of the show is that Susan and Sarah ask their celebrity guests to bring in things that make them cry— Songs, movie clips, really any kind of culture. And then they all discuss what was moving about each crying cue. Naturally, tears are shed. But the good kind of tears. The ones that feel like a tear duct cleansing. Susan Orlean, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. I'm happy to be listening with you. (laughs) Okay, so your podcast that you host with uh, Sarah Thayer is called Cry Babies. When was the last time you openly weeped? Oh, you know what? I just saw La La Land, and even though it's mostly joyous and, you know, as all all the reviews say, it's this wonderful celebration of Los Angeles, it's actually, I found it very touching. Uh Uh-huh. And and I got weepy at the end. Actually, I've been crying about a lot of movies this season. Yeah, I cried a lot at Moonlight. Oh, me too. Um, I was a puddle. I cried at Jackie because I thought it was so awful. Right. <laughs> Wait, the movie <laughs> the movie was awful or just like Jackie's life was awful? I thought the movie was awful. Um, <laughs> so I had that cry. feeling. Of, that's two hours of my life I'll never get back. But um, <laughs> so I've had a, a lot of tears lately and all of them have been very satisfying. Yeah. So how did you and um, your co-host, uh, Sarah Thayer, a comedian, a very funny woman, I actually saw her do some stand-up at a benefit show here in D.C. not too long ago. She was fantastic. But anyway. Oh, yes. Yeah. Show she's she's fantastic. Well, yeah. we're friends. Um, I had really just moved to L.A. And one day, and as a matter of fact, I'd been gone for the summer, and she had rented um, my house to as an office while we were away. <laughs> That's a very when big office that she needs. I know, Jesus. I know. It, it, it was, um, it, I think she found it very luxurious. What, did she have, like, a lot and, of filing cabinets or something? Right. <laughs> no, she, she had, a, like, a laptop, and that was it. <laughs> Um, and she was watering my plants and feeding my son's hermit crab. So it was a very good arrangement for both of right. us. Right. And when I came back and I was, uh, she had dropped by to pick up her stuff and we were chatting a little and she said, would you ever consider doing a podcast? It was sort of out of the blue, although I love radio and already at that point had been listening to a lot of podcasts I just instantly said yeah Mm -hmm. definitely and she said crybabies and I said (laughs) count me in no it's it's such a great concept the idea of you know that you bring these guests on and they get to introduce things that move them to tears and you guys get to talk about you know movies and books and and songs and and things that that spark uh, the waterworks I love it it's so it's it's really clever oh it's such a, a wonderful first of all thank you but it, it, one of the great things and a, a way in which this show is so 
so much in keeping with the other work I do is that I think often there's a a tiny portal through which the world opens up very large and it becomes a really interesting way of examining things to enter it through a very specific idea. Mm-hmm. We end up talking to guests about about so many things and it really ends up being about about their lives, about their past, about different experiences they've had, but coming at it with um, with this starting point. Um, I will admit I am a hideous crier. Uh, I mean, I'm not like full Claire Danes, like quivering chin, um, but I am pretty hideous a crier. Are you, how ugly of a crier are you? Or are you just like, do you, you know, are, are you the, the rare person who actually, like, looks decent when you cry? I look amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, kidding. I'm totally kidding. Oh, my God. I, I look like a lab rat when I'm, I mean, it's <laughs> awful. And I used to, you know, have that experience where I'd be having a fight with my boyfriend and crying, and every no- once in a while I'd somehow glance in a reflective circus, surface. Yeah. And think, oh God! Yeah, I mean, this is awful. I've got to take a break and just put on a little makeup. And cause how can how can I possibly have any purchase in this argument if right. I look like this? Um, have you ever listened to a podcast that made you cry ever? Actually, I have. Um, I listened to Embedded, which. Um, I highly recommend, and uh, one in particular, which was about uh, opiate addicts um, talking about their lives, and it, it's a fantastic podcast, and it was it was so sad. From April to July, I lost probably 35 pounds more. I mean, I would go four or five days without even a drink of water. All I could think about was using pills. I didn't care about hydration, nutrition, you know, none of that. So I lost quite a bit of weight, and the mugshot was definitely horror. And then for that to be plastered out there for the world to see, I was so humiliated on top of withdrawing and the depression from, oh, my God, look what you've done to your life, you know, look what you've lost. You have nothing to live for. So I cut my wrist in jail. I used my... um, my bra, the underwires in my bra, and managed to to break it to where it was sharp enough to use, and you can still see the scar. I listen to podcasts a lot when I'm running, and the combination of running and crying is not oh, ideal. No. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't recommend listening to sad podcasts God, while you're running. Awful. Hearing someone else cry, it's like yawning. It's contagious, mm-hmm. and hearing her cry. Then I started getting very tearful, and I thought, this is just not helping me run here. (laughs) No, it's I'm having an oxygen problem. Yeah. So what are the other things that you're listening to? Well, I'll tell you a few of my favorites. I love Song Exploder. Mm -hmm. Angel Olsen released her third album, My Woman, in September 2016. I just think it's terrific, and... 
it goes back to what we were talking about earlier that sometimes it's so interesting to take a very small specific thing and look at it deeply mm-hmm. and you end up learning about a lot more than that. Hi, I'm Angel Olson. This was the first song in a long time that I had spent a lot of time trying to write just like a simple guitar part for. I love Hidden Brain. Everywhere in life, at work, at school, at a sports game in a big stadium with thousands of other people, at home in the privacy of our own bedrooms, our behavior is constantly shaped by the judgments, norms, and actions of other people. My guilty pleasure is criminal. In 2010, Michael McIntosh's son was incarcerated at the Walnut Grove Youth Correctional Facility in the town of Walnut Grove, Mississippi. His son, who's named after him, had just turned 20. And on one Sunday, Michael went to visit his son and was told he could not see him because they didn't know where he was. Crime is a wonderful way into the human condition. So it's, a, it's again, a great organizing principle for looking at the world through one specific yeah. entry point. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been listening to the show with my son, which is fun, and my son is really into podcasts, which is great. Um, and we listen to a lot when we're doing family car trips. Uh-huh. Um, there's a show called Science Versus, mm-hmm. where the host takes a scientific assumption and then breaks it down to see whether it's actually true or not. On today's show, science versus organic food. Is it really better for you and for the environment? It's a very interesting and and surprising and I think a good way to introduce my son to the idea that not everything that's presented as fact is fact and that it's worth sitting down and thinking through some of these assumptions that you that you hear. Well, uh, Susan Orlean, uh, co-host of Crybabies from Earwolf, thanks so much for hanging out with us. It's been a blast. Oh, it's been fantastic. Thank you. Now go go cry a little. <laughs> I already did this morning. I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> oh, okay. Great. <laughs> Susan Orlean is the co-host of Crybabies from Earwolf, as well as the author of many books. To find out more about her show or any of the shows she recommended, go to biglisten.org. It's got the links. We've almost reached the end of this week's episode. No. No, it's true. We have. But before we let you go, it's time for... C-H-A-R-T-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the iTunes charts. But we are not looking at number one or even number 100. We are looking at number 289, which seriously, out of hundreds of thousands of podcasts, it's pretty flipping great if you get to 289. So this week, hold on, let me find my, I wrote it down in a notebook. 289 this week is a show called Slumber Party with Allie and Georgia. Now, I don't know why it's called Slumber Party with Allie and Georgia, because I thought they would be in their pajamas and they'd be lying in a bed with a guest or something like that. Um, you know, or maybe they'd be wearing robes. I don't know. I didn't get the sense they were anywhere near a bed. However, I could be wrong. Um, but Allie and Georgia um, are Allie Ward and Georgia Hardstock, which is Hardstark. Georgia Hardstark. 
which is like kind of a great name. Um, and then they just started talking about things like um, they start the show by saying things that they um, they have a segment of things they learned this week. So things they learned this week, um, one of them learned what a limousine liberal was. Mass transit for everyone. And then they're like, uh, we take a limousine. That's hence the limousine right. liberal. And the other watched a rat documentary um, done by Morgan Spurlock. And apparently she learned about rat genitalia. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, which I won't share with you here because it was disgusting. And it was about a 10 minute conversation. It's a very long episode. It's a very, it's a very long show. And so I skipped through because I like, didn't have an hour and a half to listen to them. But here are the topics that they covered in the time that I skipped through. Um, weed. So I heard from this like amazing weed expert. Skincare. It's chlorophyll. It's a green stuff in plants. Put it on your face, you guys. Dishwashing. You've seen what happens when there's a dish bin full of disgusting yeah. suds. Yes, yes. So it's a podcast with like, you know, two lady hosts and they have lady guests and then they just like, you know, shoot the breeze and talk about whatever they want. Woo, it's a slumber party, yay. Would you believe me if I told you that this podcast that you are listening to right now is a weekly thing that you can get delivered to your own digital device every single week without even lifting a finger? Well, like one finger to hit the subscribe button, but whatever. Well, you should, because you can go to iTunes or NPR One or any fine purveyor podcasts and subscribe. So I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, we love us some listener feedback. So like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. We're pretty fun there. We are at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. So follow us. Our electronic mail address is biglisten at wamu.org. Also, I will never stop shamelessly asking for snail mail unless we actually get some. So slap a stamp on it. Are you looking for show notes with the links to all of this week's featured shows? Well, hit up biglisten.org. It's all there. Or subscribe to our official newsletter. There's a link on our website. The show today was produced, mixed, and edited by Jacob Fenston with help from our new best friend, Fonsi Rutsch. I, Lauren Ober, was considering cleaning my apartment. Special thanks to head cheerleader Beck Feldhouse Adams for helping out. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yor, and is produced by WAMU and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a final word from our pal Lindsay Varghese about the podcast that saved her life. What would you say to the Another Round folks, you know, if you could talk to them about this? Well, like, what would you say? One of my goals ha- goals for 2017 is gratitude. And the Another Round podcast put together a show that started a domino effect in my life. You know, one thing led to another, and I'm, I just, I'm just forever grateful and thankful for their representation because I feel like where else do you hear these stories, you know, except for podcasts? led by two women of color who feature women of color on, you know, on their show. So just thank you. And thank you, Padma Lakshmi, right? (laughs) I mean, I will never watch Top Chef in the same way ever again. And neither will we. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR.
are you still doing here? The show ended. But since you're still here, how's about you hop on over to iTunes, drop us a little review, let us know what you think of the show. We would love to hear from you. Thank you in advance. Bye.